Welcome back to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. In this episode, we're continuing a recent session from the University of Arizona College of Medicine titled Approaches in Congestive Heart Failure. Let's return now to presenter Dr. Mark Friedman from the University of Arizona. Let me just give you a little bit of background about our interaction with the surgeons. The surgeons here are interested in implanting devices and doing transplants. They cannot transplant a patient who's got renal insufficiency. The mortality statistics for transplant, heart transplants in the patient with renal failure is very, very high, and so unless they're willing to transplant both the heart and kidney pretty much at the same time, they will not transplant a patient with bad heart disease who has renal failure. So when we get a patient in the hospital who is decompensated and uh, we know that they have very, very severe cardiac dysfunction and we're thinking that they may wind up needing a device, uh, the left ventricular assist device, the total artificial heart, or being considered for a transplant, their kidney function becomes critical. Because if we treat them medically and we create renal failure in these people, even a moderate degree of renal failure, so we start out with a creatinine of 1.3 and we make it 1.8, patient is asymptomatic. The patient's not really having trouble, but their surgical mortality statistics for a creatinine of 1.8 is so high that they will not transplant that person. So we look at the people who are being considered for devices and transplant differently than the patient that we know we are going to treat medically long-term, and we are not going to consider them for a transplant or a device right now. If there's really serious consideration for a transplant, then we will try as best as we can to preserve the kidneys. And if we're not considering that at all, then I personally don't care if the creatinine is 1.6 or 1.7 if the patient is responding to therapy and doing well. That's fine with me, but it's not fine for the surgeons because of their experience. Again, there are patient populations, both in the ischemic and non-ischemic groups uh, that benefit from defibrillator implants. This is really a whole separate discussion and topic, so I'd rather Dr. Indek and Ott discuss this rather than spending a lot of time on this. And as I mentioned, cardiac resynchronization therapy, which is trying to get the heart that's beating uh, dyssynchronous because of conduction system abnormalities to contract in a more uniform, improved pattern in certain specific patient populations has been very effective. And with the addition of this therapy with medical therapy, many of these people have improved dramatically with respect to their LV function. And even people who were listed for transplant have been able to get off the transplant list because their ventricular function improved so much with a combination of medical therapy and this type of pacemaker intervention. Okay. So there are a lot of things in the newspaper about uh, management of various medical problems, including heart failure. And what's not been shown to be effective is anything you can buy in the drugstore that's a nutritional supplement. Hormone therapies have not been proven to be of any effect in heart failure management. So if you have a male patient who thinks that his testosterone levels are low and that's why he's in heart failure, it's not the case. And he's not going to benefit, at least with respect to his heart failure, of getting testosterone injections. Intravenous inotropic therapy. We do send people home on inotropic therapy. Uh, these are end-stage people that we cannot help, and it does make them feel better. It does not make them live longer. In fact, they probably don't live as long, but it does make them feel better. We do that as a continuous infusion. There are centers around. I don't know if there are any still in Tucson, but there are in the country some places that have their patients come in like dialysis. Three days a week, they come into their outpatient center and they get their fix of dobutamine for a couple of hours and then they think that they're doing some good. That is not recommended therapy and is considered to be harmful. So 
As I mentioned, we do send some people home on dobutamine or milrinone as another inotrope for their therapy when they have end-stage disease, and it is considered palliative therapy. It is not considered therapy to make these people live longer or improve their chance for survival or to get them to a point of being transplantable or whatever. If they're going home on continuous dobutamine, it's like they're on hospice. We're just trying to make them feel better for the, whatever period of time that they have alive. Controversy about calcium channel blockers. Most calcium channel blockers, in fact, all calcium channel blockers are negative inotropes. The vasodilating calcium channel blockers like Procardia and Norbask, because they're vasodilators, you don't get a measurable negative inotropic effect, but direct effect on the heart would be a negative inotrope. So in general, calcium channel blockers are not recommended for heart failure therapy. We mentioned before, hormone therapy is not recommended, and this is mentioned over and over again in these guidelines, use of an ACE and ARB and aldactone together is not recommended. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, this group of people with normal preserved LV systolic function who are symptomatic with heart failure. These people are either defined as having diastolic heart failure or some people think that that's not a good term, so they use the designation of a heart failure with preserved systolic function. Most of these people have hypertension as their underlying diagnosis. Some of these people have restrictive cardiomyopathies as their uh, predominant diagnosis. And so treating hypertension, if that's the etiology, becomes critical. If you can control their hypertension, then maybe you can prevent the progression of this disease. If they have arrhythmias, especially atrial fibrillation, where you lose AV synchrony, the non-compliant left ventricle does not do well when it's not being controlled with normal sinus rhythm. So controlling the ventricular rate of a patient with atrial fibrillation would be very, very important in this patient population. And all these people feel awful because they can't breathe and they can't walk. They're usually volume overloaded. At least they have high left ventricular filling pressures, and they benefit from being diuresed and having a lower volume in their stiff hearts in order to function. If you over-diurese these people, they get hypotensive, and if you don't diurese them enough, then they can't breathe. So it's a kind of tough patient population to deal with. All of these drugs have been tried. ACE inhibitors, OBS, beta blockers, digitalis have been used. I'm not sure why digitalis is effective in this patient group because the systolic function of the heart is preserved. There are studies that looked at bypassing these people if they have underlying coronary disease, the idea that the ischemia is responsible for the stiff heart, and therefore they get better with revascularization. And uh, again, uh, trying to maintain sinus rhythm, this is the argument, is it better in your atrial fibrillation patient to cardiovert them and keep them in sinus rhythm and poison them with a bunch of amiodarone, or is it okay to just leave them in atrial fibrillation with controlled response? And that's an argument that Dr. Ottenende can have with you. So... Same kind of scale, nobody would argue that if you have a patient who's got significant hypertension and they already have a stiff heart, that treating their hypertension would be appropriate, and there are studies to prove that that's a benefit. Controlling the ventricular rate of somebody with atrial fibrillation, everybody would agree that it's an important thing to do. It's a consensus statement. There are no randomized controlled studies that show that this is a benefit. Treating people with diuretics definitely makes people feel better, for sure, and it's absolutely critical therapy. Recommended as a class one indication, meaning everybody agrees you should do it. No controlled studies to indicate that it's beneficial. Bypassing people. You'd think if you have ischemic disease and ischemia doesn't let the heart work well and it causes ventricular dysfunction, especially diastolic dysfunction, that if you make the heart with better perfusion that it would get better, most people agree that that's an indication that's worthwhile. No controlled studies to indicate that there's benefit. 
maintaining sinus rhythm as opposed to leaving the patient atrial fibrillation with controlled response. Many people think it's worthwhile. Some people don't think it's worthwhile. No controlled studies to indicate benefit. ACE inhibitors. Class 1A indication for systolic dysfunction. In this group, a 2B indication. No controlled studies. ARBs, no controlled studies. Beta blockers, no controlled studies. Digitalis, no controlled studies. So the point being that it's probably more than 50% of the patients that we see in heart failure, and there basically have been no well-controlled studies on trying to decide how to treat those people. The only thing everybody agrees to is hypertension needs to be treated. That's a given. Anything else is really unknown right now. So the end-stage patient, which is the patient we're really dealing with uh, often in the hospital here when they get referred for consideration of device implant or transplant or whatever, we're talking about really very, very sick people. So the patient who's drowning, you need to get their volume status controlled. That's the most important thing that you can do as initial therapy. So you need to be able to get these people diuresed. And just to talk about diuretics a little bit, I didn't spend much time on the dosing that's recommended. But the dose of diuretic that's required for these people is the dose that works. There is no standard dose. I can't tell you it's 20 milligrams of Lasix or it's 80 milligrams of Lasix. Everybody's response is going to be different, and it will differ depending on how good their kidneys are. So if they have really good kidneys, they'll respond to relatively low dose. If they have not such good kidneys, it's going to require a lot more diuretic in order to get them to respond. And so I see frequently the order's written, patient comes in, and they get an order for a dose of Lasix. And actually, the initial order is written to give that same dose of Lasix three times a day, four times a day, eight times a day, whatever the house staff people think is appropriate. The problem is that nobody measures the response to the first dose of Lasix. And so if they didn't respond to the 20 milligrams the first time, they're not going to respond to the 20 milligrams the second time or the eighth time. And it's not like you've given the patient 160 milligrams of Lasix because you gave him 20 milligrams eight times a day. You gave the patient 20 milligrams of Lasix, and he didn't respond. And he's not going to respond to 20 at any time. Once you figure out what the dose is that they respond to, then you can give it as often as you think they need to give it to get whatever negative fluid balance you want to accomplish over the course of 24 hours. So if your goal is to have a negative fluid balance of a liter or a liter and a half over 24 hours, and you give them a dose of Lasix, and you say their negative fluid balance over the first two or three hours was X, whatever it is, then you can figure out how many times you need to give that dose in order to get one and a half liters of of negative fluid balance over 24 hours, and you should get that continued response as long as the kidney response to the Lasix remains the same. But until you determine what that threshold dose of Lasix is, you can't write a six times a day Lasix dose or a three times a day Lasix dose because you don't know that the dose is going to work. So the nurses here are at least being educated that measurement of the initial response to Lasix, the urine output, and how much fluid people are taking in is critical. The problem is that you know patients are not always compliant, and the nurses may do an excellent job of trying to collect urine output, but how many times did the patient go to the bathroom by themselves and didn't collect their urine? Who knows? How many times did they drink a cup of water that they didn't record on their thing? And so you don't really know what their input is. You don't really know what their output is. And it's very difficult to assess that. Some of the nurses on 4West are excellent at bombarding the patient and saying, you need to tell me every time you take an ice chip in your mouth or whatever to give you that initial 
response that determines that your patient is either responding or not responding to your therapy. There was a recent paper that was just published concerning how to give the diuretics. So outpatient, obviously, diuretics are used orally, and they're very effective. Lasix is absorbed very well, and its effect on the kidney uh, is pretty good as an oral agent until the patient develops serious volume overload, because then the absorption is different and the effect on the kidney is different. And so even though the patient may be taking 80 milligrams of Lasix by mouth that's an outpatient, and they come in and you give them 80 milligrams IV, and you're amazed that they diuresed like crazy with your IV drug that they weren't responding to the same dose as an outpatient. The reason is they're not getting the effect of 80 milligrams from their oral tablets if they are seriously volume overloaded. The major effect of giving the drug intravenously is two. One, you get a bolus effect on the kidney, which is more effective. And second, you do away with the fact that there may be an absorption problem if the gut is edematous. And so the drug given intravenously is more effective. So the intravenous drug is given as a dose, whatever dose you choose, and then a response is observed, and if the response is adequate, then that's an okay dose. If the response is not adequate, then the dose is increased. So you can start at whatever low dose you want, 10, 20, then you double it. If 20 didn't work, you go to 40. If 40 didn't work, you go to 80, and you keep doubling it until you get a response. Or you say, this is not going to work, and I'm going to go to a different drug. Many of us will go to continuous infusion, intravenous Lasix. And there was just a report that said it really doesn't make any difference. You don't get any additional major beneficial effect of continuous Lasix over high dose or even moderate dose intermittent boluses of Lasix. So uh, based on that uh, study, which was a pretty good study, I think it's up to you how you want to give it. They didn't say that continuous infusion is bad. It just said it wasn't any better than giving it as intermittent bolus therapy. So in the patients who are end stage, controlling their fluid retention and the volume overload is really critical. There are some studies that prove that this is a benefit. There actually are no controlled studies to demonstrate this. And the one thing that everybody agrees to, and there actually are some studies that say that even though internists are very well trained, when people get this sick, internists don't do as well as cardiologists in managing these very critically ill end-stage heart failure patients. And so the current recommendation is if you have a patient who is at this degree of decompensation, that they really need to be seen by somebody who has some expertise in the management of really sick heart failure people. As I mentioned before, implants of defibrillators have become very, very important in this patient population because of their risk of sudden cardiac death. And the device is very, very helpful in protecting them from dying suddenly from ventricular fibrillation. But if you get into a situation where your patient has end-stage disease and they're responding to nothing and you know they're going to die, the decision has to be made, are they better off dying suddenly in ventricular fibrillation or are they better off dying slowly in heart failure? And many people might choose to die suddenly with ventricular fibrillation. Well, if they have the defibrillator in place and the defibrillator is active, they're not going to die in ventricular fibrillation. They're just going to get shocked out of their ventricular fibrillation. And so... The recommendation really is to really have this discussion with a patient in the family. When you get to a point where you say it's not working and I really am not going to be able to manage this situation anymore, you need to have the discussion with the patient about turning the defibrillator off. You're not actively murdering them. What you're doing is you're saying they're going to have a natural death and I'm not going to prevent that death. And if it happens to be an arrhythmic death that's sudden, maybe that's the best thing for the patient. I'm not going to stop. You have been listening to a session of Grand Rounds from the University of Arizona College of Medicine, presented on ReachMD's series, Grand Rounds Nation. Be sure to join us again for the next episode of the nation's best Grand Rounds. Until then, 
I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and thanks for listening.